Hey everybody, it's Dan Dan, and today we are going to dive into a study of the fourth step. We are in that fancy handy dandy pocket guide called the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions on page 34. Today will be just part one of step four, and in part one what we're going to do is cover the idea of instincts and the way our instincts go completely crazy and give us trouble in our lives. And I think that's important. So much time is spent on the idea of resentment, and Bill took a lot of time to really develop the concept of resentment that he's talking about around our instincts. So let's dive in. It's kind of a long read today. In any case, we will get it done. Are you guys ready? So step number four, page 34, in the handy dandy guide, the 12 steps and 12 traditions, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of everyone but me. No, of ourselves. Here we go. Step number four, page 34. It says, creation gave us instincts for a purpose. Without them, we wouldn't be complete human beings. If men and women didn't exert themselves to be secure in their persons, made no effort to harvest food or construct shelter, there would be no survival. If they didn't reproduce, the earth wouldn't be populated. If there were no social instinct, if men cared nothing for the society of one another, there would be no society. So these desires for the sex relation, for material and emotional security, and for companionship are perfectly necessary and right and surely God-given. And I think that's important to think about because I want to feel guilty about a lot of this stuff or think I can or can't, that black and white, all or nothing thinking of my mind doesn't want me to have that middle ground, right? Some people say that, you know, I see normal like a pendulum on a clock as I pass it by. <laughs> it says, yet yeah, these instincts so necessary for our existence often far exceed their proper functions. Powerfully, blindly, many times subtly, they drive us, dominate us, and insist upon ruling our lives. What a great description, right? Insist upon ruling our lives. Our desires for sex, for material and emotional security, and for an important place in society often tyrannize, which means uses its own power to dominate us. They dominate us. They tyrannize us. When thus out of joint, man's natural desires cause him great trouble. Practically all the trouble there is. No human being, however good, is exempt from these troubles. That'd be like no human being. So if you're sitting back like, I don't know, I don't, I don't have any resentments. I don't need to do a four-step. I've heard that a bunch of times. Think about that. No human being, however good, is exempt from these troubles. Nearly every serious emotional problem can be seen as a case of misdirected instinct. Woo! That's a hefty claim. Just about every serious emotional problem, your emotional problems, my emotional problems, can be seen as a misdirected instinct. When that happens, our great natural assets, the instincts, have turned into physical and mental liabilities. Step four is our vigorous and painstaking effort to discover what these liabilities in each of us have been and, well, currently are and are. So vigorous, we're talking about doing it with great force. We're going to get all the way into this thing. And in painstaking, we're going to show a lot of care and put the effort behind that vigor, that force. We want to find exactly how, when, and where our natural desires have warped us. We wish to look squarely at the unhappiness this has caused 
others and ourselves. It's so important to be thinking about others. By discovering what our emotional deformities are, I love that, emotional deformities. I am emotionally deformed. Yes, emotional deformities are, we can move toward their correction without a willing, willing, willing. So important, right? We're carrying that right on through. First step, second step, third step, fourth step, willing and persistent, meaning continuing beyond the usual amount of time that we're going to persist in this effort. Without a willing and persistent effort to do this, there can be little sobriety or contentment for us. Without a searching and fearless moral inventory, he's going to lay down the law here. Without a searching and fearless moral inventory, most of us have found that the faith which really works in daily living is still out of reach. Hmm. So we've come across some ideas already. One is that our instincts want to dominate us and they're out of control. Second, that Basically, all of our emotional problems are, in essence, a case of misdirected instincts and not getting control of this, not finding a way to do this, not finding a, being unable to or unwilling, lacking persistence in following through with the fourth step means we won't find that faith that we're looking for to rely on and stay sober. Here's something to think about there, too, that I think is vitally important. It doesn't say that it's hard. It doesn't say that you're going to be completely wrecked. It doesn't say you can't do it or you should take your time. It doesn't say that, hey, you know, only to the degree you can handle it. It doesn't say that it depends on your circumstances. It doesn't say it should wait until you finish work or wait until you finish what you got at home. It doesn't say any of that. It says that we are going to willingly persist after it, that we're going to go after it vigorously. That's what it says. So ask yourself, is this my approach to the four-step? Remember, it's not about perfection. It's about learning how to use a tool to assess my emotional state and how it is negatively impacting others and myself and learning how to make corrections to it. That's what this is about. So as we keep going, it's going to move a little deeper into how these emotional disruptions affect us goes on before tackling the inventory problem in detail let's have a closer look at what the basic problem is so here's the basic problem simple examples like the following take on a world of meaning when we think about them when we think about them and not when we just blow by it right when we think about them suppose a person places sex desire ahead of everything else in such a case, this imperious urge, which means a dominating urge. Remember, our instincts are powerful and they dominate us. This imperious urge can destroy his chances for material and emotional security, as well as his standing in the community, because a lot of embarrassing, <laughs> embarrassing things might get out there, right? Another may develop such an obsession for financial security that he wants to do nothing but hoard money. Going to the extreme, he can become a miser, which is someone who hates to spend money, or even a recluse, which is someone who like hides away, right? Who denies himself both family and friends. Nor is the quest for security always expressed in terms of money. How frequently we see a frightened human being determined to depend completely upon a stronger person for guidance and protection. Guidance and protection. Perhaps that's your rent and your utilities, your car payment, your bail money your liquor money, your drug money, your guidance and protection. Huh. This weak one, that would be the addicted one, alcoholic. 
failing to meet life's responsibilities, which we all do with our own, with his own resources, never grows up, never grows up. This illusionment, which is freedom from false ideas, the lies we tell ourselves, I'm disillusioned, I'm believing my own lies, and helplessness, which is like a being unable to do anything about it, right? Are his lot. In time, all his protectors either flee or die. We run him into the damn dirt. <laughs> it's not good. And he is once more left alone and afraid. We have also seen men and women who go power mad, who devote themselves to attempting to rule their fellows. These people often throw to the winds every chance for legitimate security and a happy life. Whenever a human being becomes a battleground for the instincts, you and me, battleground for the instincts, there can be no peace. So when we buy into this and we feed into it with our thoughts and we move towards it with our actions by acting dishonestly and continue to let these instincts dominate us, we will find no peace, serenity, calmness, contentment, harmony. Call it what you want. You can't get it by letting your instincts run wild. But that is not all the danger. Oh, wait, there's more. Every time a person imposes his instincts unreasonably upon others, unhappiness follows. It doesn't say sometimes. It says every time. Every time a person imposes his instincts unreasonably, meaning in an inappropriate way, like we're trying to get something out of them. Unhappiness follows. If the pursuit of wealth tramples upon people who happen to be in the way, then anger, jealousy, and revenge are likely to be aroused. If sex runs riot, there is a similar uproar. Demands made upon other people for too much attention, protection, and here's an interesting one, love, because we're, we're such insecure people. Tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm okay. Right? And love can only invite domination or revulsion, a strong feeling of not liking us in the protectors themselves. Two emotions quite as unhealthy as the demands which evoke them. When an individual's desire for prestige becomes uncontrollable, whether in the sewing circle or at the international conference table, other people suffer and often revolt. So important. So important. This can be as simple as competing in a basic storytelling, right? Somebody's telling a story wrong and you're like, hey man, that's not right. It happened on Wednesday. And, and that type of stuff just undermines relationships. It really goes to the core of trust and, and it can be very damaging. And they, they will revolt. They'll, it might be simple. They fire back saying, no, no, it's Tuesday. And an argument over something totally arbitrary entail, in, ensues. And then there's this other thing where they just give up. And they just go away. This collision of instincts can produce anything from a cold snub to a blazing revolution. In these ways, we are set in conflict not only with ourselves, but with other people who have instincts too. Alcoholics especially should be able to see that instinct run wild in themselves is the underlying cause of their destructive drinking. Woo. So we got selfishness as the root of our problem. We got resentment as the number one offender. We got a higher power God that is necessary in order to overcome any of these things. And now he's bringing to light that it's inside of us. This problem manifests from us in misdirected and uncontrolled instinct. And he goes on to describe it a little. He says, we have drunk to drown feelings of fear, frustration, and depression. We have drunk to escape the guilt of passions 
and then have drunk again to make more passions possible. We have drunk for vainglory, which is an undue or an exaggerated sense of pride, vainglory, that we might the more enjoy foolish dreams of pomp and power. This perverse, and the word perverse is an awesome word. The word perverse means to show up, uh, it means like wrong enough, wrong enough, right? Wrong enough to be weird or strange. This perverse, this strange, this completely wacky point of view, this perverse soul sickness is not pleasant to look upon. Instincts on rampage balk or refuse or deny balk at investigation. The minute we make a serious attempt to probe them, we are liable to suffer severe reactions. If temperamentality, which means likely to become angry, if temperamentally, temperamentality, like that, if temperamentally we are on the depressive side, we are apt to be swamped with guilt and self-loathing. We wallow in this messy bog, often getting a mishappen, which is a badly shaped or something that doesn't come out the way we want it to, often getting a mis mishappen and painful pleasure out of it. As we morbidly pursue this melancholy activity, which is a sad activity, is basically outlining for us that what we're doing is unpleasant to look at, sad to be a part of, completely irrational, and self-defeating. As we morbidly, which means in a horrible manner, pursue this melancholy activity, we may sink to such a point of despair that nothing but oblivion looks possible as a solution. Here, of course, we have lost all perspective and therefore all genuine humility, for this is pride in reverse. Now, that's a really cool thing to think about, that self-pity is pride in reverse. I got this pride that says I can do anything, have anything, I'm entitled to the world, and I got this other pride that says, I'm so bad, I can't have anything, you know, and everybody thinks this way. Both of them are putting onto the world my will and deciding for others what they think. Pride in reverse. This is not a moral inventory at all. So as you get into your moral inventory, it's not that you're trying to self-deprecate to the right degree or drag yourself down or make yourself look bad. It's an objective view. So we want to avoid this pride in reverse. It really at all costs. It says this is not a moral inventory at all. It is the very process by which the depressive has so often been led to the bottle and extinction. So when you hear people say the four step was hard or they're afraid of it, this is the reason why. The approach to it is too self-deprecating. They're not looking at it objectively to identify the character defects, the soul sickness, the instincts gone awry that they want to address and learn how to get a grip on. All right, so it goes on. If, however, our natural disposition is inclined to self-righteousness or grandiosity, hmm, a reaction will be just the opposite. Like, I got this thing. I can, I can do an inventory. Watch this. I'll be done in a half hour. Get out of my way, right? We will be offended at AA's suggested inventory. Maybe not at the inventory themselves either, but the methodology, the depth that we require it to go, the fact that we don't approach it intellectually, that we really want you to connect to it emotionally. Hmm. No doubt we shall point with pride to the good lives we thought we led before the bottle cut us down. We shall claim that our serious character defects, if we think we have any at all, have been caused chiefly by excessive drinking. This being so, we think it logically follows that sobriety, first, last, 
and all the time is the only thing we need to work for. Important cautionary note, our big book tells us that thinking that not drinking alone is enough is not thinking. It's not thinking. Sobriety is not achieved by not drinking. A sober mind is a sane mind that is calm and quiet and peaceful. They say that infants are born with a sober mind, a calm, peaceful mind. Hmm. We believe that our one-time good characters will be revived the moment we quit alcohol. Well, I'd say something about that, but we might. <laughs> anyway, if we were pretty nice people all along, except for our drinking, what need is there for moral inventory now that we are sober? We also clutch in another wonderful excuse for avoiding an inventory. Our present anxieties and trouble. We just, I just can't handle it. This is how you get to where you can handle other stuff including that stuff. Our present anxieties and troubles. We cry. We cry. We cry. Oh my gosh. Are caused by the behavior of other people. People who really need a moral inventory. It's not me. It's them. We firmly believe that if only they'd treat us better, we'd all be right. Therefore, we think our indignation, anger without a wrong, righteous indignation is justified and reasonable. I have every right to be angry though it is very dangerous to be angry, that our resentments are the right kind. I mean, I got the right kind of resentment. Like, I really did me wrong. I really had this horrible thing happen to me. And, um, and that's just that, right? We aren't the guilty ones. They are. Woo! <laughs> that's a tough one to overcome. When I've dealt with sponsors and sponsees, I'm sorry, in the past, that one right there seems to be the toughest one because... It's a victim mentality from something that really did happen oftentimes, and we want to help them overcome it. So the simple rule is that you can't overcome it until you convert that, that wrong done to you, to doing good by other people, which is this process. And this is what makes that possible. Now, some people just don't want to do that. Something happened, some sort of assault, some sort of injury emotionally, some sort of theft or something. Things that you get violated on and have a deep, profound effect, and they just don't want to do it. Don't let that slow down this inventory process. Do it with everything else, and then you can perhaps revisit it later. It may come on its own as the process gets ingrained in that person's life. So it goes on. At this stage of the inventory proceedings, our sponsors come to the rescue. Yay, they can do this for they are the carriers of AA's tested experience with step four. And here in the text, it sort of takes a strange turn now. He hasn't told us, but he's going to start talking to the sponsor. And we're going to talk less about us specifically. And we're going to see a little bit more about the sponsor directly. You know, what's the sponsor observing? And then it'll change back here in just a second. They comfort the melancholy, the sad ones, one by first showing him that his case is not strange or different. He's not unique. That his character defects are probably not more numerous or worse than those of anyone else in AA. This the sponsor promptly proves by talking freely and easily without exhibitionism, which is turning the attention on himself, right? Telling a better story, the one-upmanship that we're like all so good at about his own defects, past and present. That's that story. This calm yet realistic stock-taking is immensely reassuring. So important that we do that, sponsors, right? The sponsor probably points out that the newcomer has some assets which can be noted along with his liabilities. 
This tends to clear away morbidity, that sickness of mind, right? The away morbidity and courage balance. As soon as he begins to be more objective, there's our operating word, the newcomer can fearlessly rather than fearfully look at his own defects. So helping them achieve that objectivity, bringing people to an objective frame of mind is a real true asset. And the best way I've ever learned to do it is to get honest with them. Quick sentences. I've done this too. This is what I did. This is how I wrote it down. You know, join them in their journey. Come alongside them, they might say, but join them. Let them carry in those things that they're afraid of and make it a conversation almost like sitting at a bar, right? All the things you wouldn't say out to the police officer, you may lay claim to quite proudly in a bar. In this case, that same sort of camaraderie is what we're after. And really only another alcoholic can bring that to the table for something like this four-step inventory. It goes on about the sponsors. The sponsors of those who feel they need no inventory, and this is the trouble I was talking about, right, are confronted with quite another problem. This is because people who are driven by pride of self unconsciously blind themselves to their liabilities. That is the actual definition of denial. People wonder what, what is denial? You know, denial is not a river in Egypt, that kind of stuff. Denial is the unconscious or the inability to see the problem. You can't see it. It's a automatic thing, not a purposeful ignoring of obvious problems. That's not denial. That's purposely ignoring the problems. Denial is very well described here. Pride of self unconsciously blinds themselves to their own liabilities. Their pride in their own skills, their own intellect keeps them from being able to see that these things are a real problem. These newcomers scarcely need comforting. The problem is to help them discover a chink in the walls their ego has built through which the light of reason can shine. Once again, our stories are really helpful for this. If all I know is pride, if all I live all day is fear, I don't know what you're talking about when you talk about this. So a sponsor being able to come along and draw them into it by thinking of my own experience. I might say to you something, I might ask you something like, well, did you ever steal stuff? Did you ever cheat on your wife? Did you ever spend money you didn't have? These kind of questions relate us. And when they say yes to any of it, say me too, this is what I did. Ask another question. Those are ways that we can knock out a chink in that wall that their ego has built. It goes on. First off, they can be told that the majority of AA members have suffered severely from self-justification during their drinking days. I think they know that, right? It's kind of intuitive you're in an AA meeting. For most of us, self-justification was the maker of excuses. We would like to use the word triggers now, right? But they're excuses. Excuses, of course, for drinking and for all kinds of crazy and damaging conduct. We had made the invention of alibis a fine art. Ah, oh, that'd be me. We had to drink because times were hard or times were good. We had to drink because at home we were smothered with love or got none at all. We had to drink because at work we were great successes or dismal failures. We had to drink because our nation had won a war or lost a peace. And so it went ad infinium. We thought conditions, that's such a important thing as well. And this references back to the big book too, that we can get sober no matter what the circumstances are and regardless of any other person. We thought conditions drove us to drink. 
And when we tried to correct these conditions and found that we couldn't to our entire satisfaction, entire satisfaction, I'm always noticing the one thing I didn't get, our drinking went out of hand and we became alcoholics. It never occurred to us that we needed to change ourselves to meet conditions, whatever they were. So the world should suit me and I'm unwilling to suit the world. No matter what I do, nothing's going to change, right? No matter what I do, nothing's going to change. The world should suit me, not me suit the world. And what this big book's projecting out to us and giving us is, if I suit the world, the world will begin to suit me. But in AA, we slowly learned that something had to be done about our vengeful resentments, self-pity and unwarranted pride. We had to see, we had to see, we had to see that every time we played the big shot, we turned people against us. We had to see that when we harbored grudges and planned revenge for such defeats, we were really beating ourselves with the club of anger we had intended to use on others. Anger is the poison you drink, hoping the other person gets sick. We learned that if we were seriously disturbed, our first italics, our first need was to quiet that disturbance, regardless of who or what we thought caused it. So that's what's so great about step four. That's its goal, to quiet that disturbance regardless of who or what we thought caused it, regardless. And the great thing about that is it opens up the door for lots of other things. If we can quiet that disturbance, if we can learn the skills that were taught by practicing step four, we will begin to do this naturally and the step will live through us. And that disturbance, regardless of its source, will no longer have that incredible power to dominate me and create those emotional, erratic, instinctful problems. It's amazing. So to see how erratic emotions victimize us often took a long time. We could perceive them quickly in others, oh, for sure, but only slowly in ourselves. First of all, we had to admit that we had many of these defects, even though such disclosures were painful and humiliating. Where other people were concerned, we had to drop the word blame, drop the word blame, get it out of there, drop the word blame from our speech and thought. This required great willingness. There's that word again, even to begin. But once over the first two or three high hurdles, and once we get started, once we get more comfortable, the course ahead began to look easier. Because with comfort comes capacity. As you get comfortable with dealing with who you really are, your character defects, your character strengths, the things you've done in the past, your plans for the future. The more you get comfortable with who you are, the more capacity you'll have to do these things. Such an important thought. So go for that comfort through practice. For we had started to get perspective on ourselves, which is another way of saying that we were gaining in humility. Woo, we're gaining in humility. What a great idea. It doesn't feel like it at this point in the fourth step, I'll tell you that. Of course, the depressive and power driver are personality extremes, types with which AA and the whole world abound. Often these personalities are just as sharply defined as the examples given. But just as some of us will fit more or less into both classifications, human beings are never quite alike. So each of us, when making an inventory, will need to determine what his individual character defects are because that's what we're inventorying. We want to get the assets too. However, what we're inventorying is the defects of character. That's the primary job here. 
Having found the shoes that fit, he ought to step into them and walk with new confidence that he is at last on the right track. So that's the end of part one. And we've really tackled the idea of the instincts. They've gone crazy. The sex instinct, the success instinct. That's kind of how I like to sum it up. And that our problems are really, truly of our own making. All this comes through step three and that we're going to be required to attach ourselves to these egregious, these problems, these things we don't like about ourselves for just a moment for the sake of the inventory. And as we get into part two, we're going to learn a lot about step five and step six because it's going to sort of lead us that way. Our hope, our strength, our thing that we're after here is to put an end to these emotional upheavals that justify our drinking, whether they're good or not good, irregardless, and to put away the idea that our drinking and our excuses, our triggers, our concepts, all the things that we like to do have nothing to do with the outside world. They live within us. And here's the great thing. If they don't live within us, we can't do anything about it. We're entirely powerless over it. So by taking ownership of this, we will be able to, once and for all, once and for all, make this thing work out good for us. And that's so critical. The fourth step will give us that opportunity. It'll give us the opportunity to own who we are. We'll get awareness of ourselves. And in gaining that awareness, we build this concept, this idea called humility. So. If you were to talk about the first part of the fourth step, it'd be easy to get into drunkologues and think about how my instincts ran wild. I'd love to tell you about all the different crazy escapades in my life too. However, that might be that morbidity, that sick reflection we don't want to do. Perhaps we can talk about it this way, that if you've been through a fourth step, how hard was it for you to get with the idea that your instincts had gone awry? How does this wrestle in your mind about my problems being basically of my own making? How has that come about? What was your experience of revelation where you came through that fourth dimension? You're catapulted into a fourth dimension when you go, aha. So as you get started in the fourth step, what were your aha moments? In the second part, we're going to talk a little bit about what to write down. And that is important too. So this topic blends right into the next. I hope you guys have a great discussion.